Welcome to Magenta Pills. Your dispensary of red, black and white capsules amidst the slow motion collapse of the empire. Hosted by Gregory Singh. Hey everyone, and thanks for coming back to Magenta Pills. Today I have a great guest with me to discuss an ebook I stumbled across called Xenofeminism, A Politics of Alienation by Laboria Cubonics. If you want to read along with our analysis, a link to this manifesto will be placed at the top of the show notes. And before we dig into it, I'd like you all to get to know a little about my good friend, co-worker, and infamous anti-fembot, Elizabeth Hobson. Hello, Ms. Hobson. Welcome to the show. Hi, Greg. Nice to be here. I'm very pleased to get your invitation, actually, and it was a very interesting read. Yeah, and uh, us talking is long overdue since we were... Kind of involved with the with the whole polyquads thing back in the day, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, can you please tell my listeners a little about who you are and what sorts of work you've done in the past? Sure. So, I have been involved mainly within the men's human rights movement, um, and I've been advocating for equal rights and opportunities, treatment, and choices uh, for the sexes which, you know, given the realistic state of modern kind of Western societies, generally disadvantages men rather than women. Um, although not always. And yeah, I sort of have organized events within that. I've done some writing. Um, bits of organizing, stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I... I very much i i'm nostalgic for the polyquads days actually that was such a good experience because you gave me a platform to write about other things because you know sex politics is not my only interest it never was my only interest so it was really a thrill to get opportunities to write about gun control and stuff like that um and yeah I don't know. That's that's about it. I'm sort of I'm on the libertarian end of the spectrum and a recent convert to Catholicism, actually. I'm working towards my baptism at the moment. So I'm I'm a lapsed Catholic. I, I I was I was educated in the Roman Catholic system here in the, the school system, but uh it just didn't stick. Uh <laughs> Once I got around to, uh, I guess, reading like Hitchens and Harris and stuff, that kind of ruined it for me. So, but I, I do see the benefit in it, and uh, that'll be something interesting to talk to you about in the future. Perhaps I'd like to have you back for that. But uh, thank you for all the work that you do for the Justice for Men and Boys. Uh, as a guy who is raising two small men of my own, I thank you for all the dedication and tireless work that you do on those fronts. So, thank you. Okay, well, I guess we'll we'll get right back into the matter at hand. Uh, we have xenofeminism, a politics of alienation. Now, broadly speaking, no pun intended, uh, this is a techno-optimist, post-humanist, and communist work that was released in about 2015 by a feminist collective of academics. Uh, they call themselves Laboria Cubonics, which I guess is supposed to be some sort of a clever anagram. Of, of an obscure mathematical society. Uh, what, but what it actually is, it's a group of what I think are overly educated, overly socialized, art and gender study PhDs 
And their real aim is to bend technological innovation to favor a post-gender, post-nature, and post-capitalist future. So I guess to start, Elizabeth, the name itself of xenofeminism, what do you suppose they're going for with this sort of language? Yeah, so I mean, you know, it's and the book, I actually did purchase the book. And so I will apologize to them because I'm sure as good little communists, they were very upset to receive my money. Um, but it's, and, and I mean, it's beautiful. It's really well presented. It's got some very interesting imagery in there. Uh, I particularly liked one of the pages has got a still from um, an Andalusian, that Salvador Dali film in it which I particularly appreciated. But yes, they are very pretentious. And, you know, the or the portmanteau, because, you know, feminism says it all, really. It's all very much about image, um, including their words, you know, which are in the classic sort of um, esoteric kind of language that people are not supposed to understand you know it's like modern art when people go and they're like that doesn't feel like art to me and rather than that reflecting badly on the art the kind of elite look down their noses at people who don't enjoy looking at a cardboard box in the middle of the room uh, or whatever um, as being, you know, Philistines. But when you um, sort of, you know, throughout, throughout this text, I think really what appeared to me was that if they got what they wanted, you know, they really are useful idiots. You know, they sort of think that they would achieve some kind of freedom and liberation and post-gender society and all of this but it never gets there does it it's like the, the communist kind of um progression is supposed to be towards like a completely decentralized almost anarchistic kind of society where everything's voluntary and everyone's free and all of that but we just have to orchestrate this tyrannical um, governmental social control first and it's like that's that's what you've got in there so yeah mm. okay yeah I mean the name itself uh the xeno feminism uh right away it made me picture the alien movie with Sigourney Weaver yeah um and it, they even have the politics of alien nation in it so I think they thought they were being overly clever with that but you're right the it, to give the devil its due uh, even if when anyone clicks on the link to the to the actual PDF online to, on their website, it's very interestingly portrayed, and the motif is very cool looking. It's very sleek and stylish, and you got to give them credit on that one. Um, so oh, yeah, you know, for that, yeah, you're you're completely right. What you said about the whole art subculture, because I did look at some of these people that wrote it and. Of course, they are very much artists, a lot of them. So that might explain partially why a lot of these ideas aren't completely thought out as well. And you're right, the pretentiousness, oh, it just, it drips, drips off the pages, how obnoxious it is. Like they really need you to know 
that they're smart and that they have read a lot of books and they need they, so but moving on a little bit i also wanted to ask you about this because i'm i'm in i was kind of uh wondering about this weird dichotomy that seems to present itself so these women are using the banner of feminism to create post-human reality so to me, these things seem to be mutually exclusive, since being in a post-gender world would necessarily mean no women. So, so what's going on with that? What do, what do you make of that? Yeah, that's an interesting point, actually. And, you know, I did notice throughout the text these kind of contradictions. But, and you know, they do at one point in the book specifically call out the kind of Trans exclusion, trans exclusionary radical feminism, um, but yeah, I mean, actually, to be honest, it's it's very much it's nothing at all to do with women. You know, classically, I would argue that feminism has not been a movement seeking the well-being, promoting the well-being and liberation of most women. It was a very sort of select class of women like since the movement began um but actually yeah i mean this text it's you know it repeatedly suggests that women and by virtue of their sex and femininity are attacked in our um now let me just get it completely right they, they complain about a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy that's right but yeah it seems that the only you know they they're using the word feminism because they see women and femininity as being under attack but it's not in order to promote the position the position of women as a class like they seem to think that you know it's just going to be this utopia where there is no such thing as sex so, yeah, it's, it's a okay. bit of an, it's an unusual take. Yeah, so in, in a way, is that their way of kind of presenting this idea that feminism being a, a, a very, obviously a feminine thing, it's it's going to birth this this new thing? Is that is that what they're going for? That they, as, as the oppressed class, only they can understand, they can only understand how bad it is? So they are the ones that have to birth this new thing? Oh, well, they certainly, you know, do suggest that they want to host this brave new world. They use the word host. They don't use the word brave new world, but that's essentially what we're talking about, let's be honest, um, which is remarkably hubristic. But I don't know if they'd appreciate your use of the term birth because they are anti-naturalist. Valid point. Okay, so I can't, I shouldn't even actually be allowed to speak on this podcast about this topic. Right? So, but, and, and again, before we start to actually analyze the text, um, I have to note just how absolutely atrocious the style of the writing was. Uh, the prose is just, it's needlessly dense word salad, and it's just, again, indicative of how high-minded these women perceive themselves to be. Like, it reads like a social studies paper on steroids. And it's, it's. I think the main point of it is just to show you how smart they are. And actually, I listened to a supplementary podcast 
in which one of the contributors, her name was uh, Dr. Emily Jones. Uh, she went on this podcast to discuss like this whole xenofeminism philosophy. And she noted in the span of 30 minutes, not less than five times that she was in fact an international lawyer. And that you needed to know this, every single sentence, you needed to know how smart this lady was. So it kind of gives you an idea of the kind of people we're talking about. But I was just going to jump in there. I, I was just going to jump in there because I do think that's an important point. And I think that one of the things, and it's not just like this sort of dense word salad, but also so much of the vocabulary is very, very esoteric. You know, you really need to be in those kind of um, disciplines to ever come across these words. But I believe, to be honest, that people who write like this actually don't understand what they're talking about. <laughs> okay. You know, and 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 actually, you know, I because my experience of motherhood kind of alerted me to the fact that a lot of concepts, which are not unusual concepts, you know, I don't know, sort of democracy and I'm trying to think of the little things that my kids asked me about when I was, when they were really small, sorry, like, you know, capitalism, like all these little things they would ask me about. And I would have to explain it thing, you know, what they mean to them in words that like five and six year olds can understand. And it was a really um, valuable process because actually I found that a lot of words that are used all the time and that I would use all the time when a little kid asks me to define them, it takes a little bit of thought. And I actually felt like I got to understand what I meant better for going through that process. And so I think that there is a real purity in writing and expressing yourself very simply and clearly. And actually, when you do write in this, you know, postmodern, absurd, complex way with stupid words often it is just a mask that you know you're overcompensating for the fact that you don't know what you're talking about by throwing so much kind of complexity at people so that they'll be intimidated by your clear intelligence but is it there I'm not convinced and I'm not convinced by the actual content of this book that they understand what they're talking about yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of comparing this to other manifestos, like I rate what came to mind immediately was both uh, Ted Kaczynski's Industrial Society and Its Future, and then uh, the Communist Manifesto, uh, and how much how much of a stark difference there is in the in the language that they use in presenting the ideas. Where with those other ones uh, that I mentioned, you know exactly what they what they want how they're going to do it and what they believe in. There's so much, uh, it, it's, this thing is so opaque. You, you really do need to actually be a PhD to decipher some of this, this language. I had to look up a ton of these words and I'm not saying I'm, I'm not, no, I'm not a PhD. I'm not a smart guy. I have a degree, but I had to look up a bunch of this stuff and I have a social sciences degree. I had no clue what they were talking about sometimes. So yeah, you're absolutely right on that point. So, and I was actually going to ask you one one last thing. Um, how did you find this 
text stacking up against other feminist uh, diatribes or any other feminist works that are out there? How how does that how did it stack up against other ones? Yeah, I mean, on the spectrum of completely mental, it's right up there with the Scum Manifesto by, by Valerie Solanas, which is, you know, they're about the same length as well. They're both just short and intensely unhinged. So I suppose I feel like the sort of the experientially, it's kind of there. Um, and then... Yeah, I think a lot of feminist literature, although I have significant problems with essential, almost all feminist literature, um, generally you do get the sense that if the feminists write in do actually care about women you know they may be misguided and i may be able to look at their ideas and you you know perceive ways in which if they got what they wanted all women would not be better off but you know generally speaking they it's clear that they are talking in their little kind of radical circles to women who may have had very negative experiences with men and be trying desperately and uh, clumsily to find ways in which these kind of women can be protected. Um, and yeah, that is not in this. This is just very much, it's a very, it's, it's sort of um, elitist, isn't it? It's very elitist. So I suppose in that way, um, it does have some uh, echo of, the work of like Christabel Pankhurst, who was one of our original suffragettes, who described men as little more than carriers of venereal disease and, you know, was very much, you know, had zero interest, um, if not outright hostility towards working class women, um, but very much, you know, despised men. And that was really she wanted the promotion of rights and privileges for upper class women with property and education um on the basis that men are just awful and i think i think there's something so yeah maybe it is in that kind of classic mold okay interesting all right um okay so I'm going to play the first section uh, of the book, uh, and for everyone listening, um, instead of us re reciting it, we're we're going to go post recital, and we're going to embrace the xenofeminism ideology, and we're going to have an AI read the subsections that we'll later talk about. So, without any further ado, here is section one of xenofeminism. One at ours is a world in vertigo. It is a world that swarms with technological mediation, interlacing our daily lives with abstraction, virtuality, and complexity. XF constructs of feminism adapted to these realities, a feminism of unprecedented cunning, scale, and vision. A future in which the realization of gender justice and feminist emancipation contribute to a universalist politics assembled from the needs of every human, cutting across race, ability, economic standing, and geographical position. 
No more futureless repetition on the treadmill of capital, no more submission to the drudgery of labor, productive and reproductive alike, and no more reification of the given mass as critique. Our future requires depetrification. XF is not a bid for revolution, but a wager on the long game of history, demanding imagination, dexterity, and persistence. XF seizes alienation as an impetus to generate new worlds. Okay, so we'll pause there for a second and just we'll analyze that opening salvo. So I'm not going to lie, they had me on the first line. The very first line they had me, yes, this is a very confusing time. It's a kaleidoscope of information that's thrown at everyone every day. But then they go on to kind of say they want to create this new universalist type of ideology. And again, I'm very confused as to how it can be universal without men. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that occurs to me, and I completely agree, the first two sentences are perfectly reasonable. Um, but there is a naivety when they suggest that xenofeminism is going to adapt to the realities of our kind of technological progression, um, which is not unique to xenofeminism. I think we are in a situation with this civilization, you know, particularly when you look at the sort of way AI is developing, where things are so, in, they're so likely to get out of control and the rate, you know, we cannot adapt at that rate. Uh, and it's massively hubristic to imagine that we can. But, you know, and then they go on, yeah, the, the universalist thing. I mean, that's one of the contradictions that is repeated throughout the book. Um, and, you, you know, they do talk later in the book about the importance of intersectionalism. But that is in conflict with universalism, you know, focusing on our arbitrary sort of characteristics. Yeah, is so absolutely. not universalist. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's like you said about AI, it's almost like, obviously, we'll get farther into the text, but it's almost naive to read this now where they don't even mention artificial intelligence once. It's kind of strange considering they, they seem to, I, I, they, they seem to think themselves very highly in that uh, they're on the cutting edge of technology, but this isn't even broached at all in the entire of the text. No, it's not actually. Now I come to think of it, I didn't even mention that. Uh, sorry, mention that. I didn't even notice that particularly. But now you come to mention it, the only specific thing they mention is kind of meme culture at some point that they want to create memes. And it's like, if, if that's all they've got, <laughs> you know, that memes are not going to combat the complexity of our current situation and wherever it's going to go in the near future. Um, but, you know, it's interesting where they talk. So they're going to realize gender justice and feminist emancipation for every human cutting across race, ability, economic standing and geographical position. Because, you know, all of those categories have nothing to do with feminism. It is interesting why they've kind of attached themselves to the feminist kind of umbrella. Um, but I also think, you know, I mean, they've gone in this very first paragraph from noting the complexity of technology at the moment 
to saying that they're going to construct this feminism of unprecedented cunning scale and vision. And it really, it really would be unprecedented. I don't think there's any way that all of us, even United, will be able to hold the reins on the technology that's being developed at the moment. Um, unless, you know, some kind of immediate dramatic pause happens that I don't expect. Um, but the fact that, you know, they, they want to do this in order to promote the needs of every human, any race, ability, economic standing or geographical position. Every human across all those metrics is not, and I'm sure that they would agree, is not going to be able to act with unprecedented cunning scale and vision. You know, most people have significantly more basic needs to attend to than this and so already in this first paragraph they are setting up this situation where this collective this movement are going to be you know the custodians of the human race and it's like just remarkable remarkable hubris and i just think they need to find god <laughs> for fear of becoming him or her <laughs> it is quite striking yeah that they that the philosopher queen aspect of this. And it really, it, it would be funny to see them try and go to say like a goat herder in Afghanistan and try and convert them to this. I, I, I would memes. love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll continue playing so you can sip your drink for a second. XF seizes alienation as an impetus to generate new worlds. We are all alienated, but have we ever been otherwise? It is through, and not despite, our alienated condition that we can free ourselves from the muck of immediacy. Freedom is not given, and it's certainly not given by anything natural. Anyone who's been deemed unnaturally in the face of reigning biological norms, anyone who's experienced injustices wrought in the name of the natural order. Okay, so we'll pause there for a sec. Um, this is where they, it seems like they're really standing up to put their argument against nature. That seems to be their big grievance in this whole thing. They absolutely cannot stand that they have to deal with what I imagine, and maybe you can help me out with this, just the biological reality of being a woman. This seems to be the big grievance throughout the whole thing. And so how common is this to most other feminism and why do you think they're focusing on this so specifically? Yeah, I mean, there has been streams of this certainly Sylvia Plath's some of her poems are profoundly you know she finds her biological condition disgusting and you know it's very unfortunate um and how common is it to feminism it's it, yeah it's it, it goes one of two ways you know some feminists think that you know it's all it's all that free bleeding stuff and they're very overly proud of their biological functions um but the hostility that this collective have towards our natural conditions is really quite gross i find like quite disturbing um you know, I just, I didn't, I just underline this while 
uh, our friendly AI was reading it actually. The part where they mentioned that that our alienated condition that we can free ourselves, sorry, it's through our alienated condition that we can free ourselves from the muck of immediacy. Like, and so by the muck of immediacy, I assume that they are, you know, because they're contrasting it with alienation, they're talking about human relationships. And yeah. it's like to call that muck is just wild. And, you know, in a way that we are all alienated and we all have always been alienated. You know, we are all stuck in our own heads and only words can build bridges between those prisons. And and sometimes words are not enough and it's really difficult, you know, and that's a tragedy of human existence. Um, but to refer to like human relationships as muck, like, especially in, you know, modern society where I think people suffer terribly because of the increasing alienation, because we don't live together and rely on each other in the same ways as, as traditionally we've had to, you know, I think people suffer terribly for that. So yeah, to call it muck is really cool. Yeah, they seem not at all interested in trying to repair any of the broken bonds that are that have been going down between the sexes and between employers, and they have no interest in that. Actually, I stumbled upon this manifesto because I was looking up books about accelerationism, and then I kind of I landed on something to do with Nick Land in his older work. And then that led me to this through some subparagraph. So it does seem like they are accelerationists in the, in the sense that they, they realize the grievances and the things that are occurring right now, and they want to make them even worse so that they can be the saviors, that they can usher in yeah. the new world. That really does seem like what's happening here. Um, do you have anything else to add, or do you want to go on to the next section? Yeah, you know, I would just add that that kind of attitude as well so often seems to come from a place of privilege. Um, you know, like you get these feminists who go on and on about how awful it is to be a woman that's constantly violated by male attention and they look at you and they smile at you and, you know, sometimes they ask you for coffee and it's just awful. And, you know, then they get to middle age and they're like, I really miss that. And, and that's why patriarchy is awful. You know, I'm clearly, I have internalized misogyny and it's like, no, that is, you know, that's natural. Like you, you can and should enjoy interacting and, you know, people responding positively towards you and part of you did and you denied it. But the truth is that even then part of you understood that, that was that was a nice thing to happen, you know, and I don't think that many people who are despairingly lonely would talk about human relationships as muck. I suspect none of these women have ever really experienced, you know, total isolation um, when nobody cares at all which unfortunately, you know, increasing numbers of elderly and others do experience in modern society. Check your yeah, privilege, girls. 
Yeah, there is very much a self-pitying, but wanting to like almost monetize the self-pity into something that they can build an alternate uh, personality and, and life off of it. But I, I don't know how concrete those foundations are when you set up a life that's based around grievance and uh, just trying to exploit uh, people who would otherwise be normal to try and adopt these ideologies. But yeah, well, uh, there's, um, we'll go there's a great. Go ahead. I was just going to mention this. There's a great line in The Monkey's Head, which is a movie that the monkeys made at the end of their career. So for anyone who doesn't know, they were like a sort of pop band in the 60s and they had this, they were manufactured and they had this really cheesy TV show and were barely tolerable. But then they put out this film at the very end of their career together, which is majorly angsty and really interesting and there's clips from like Vietnam in there and there are all these walk-ons from like Jack Nicholson and Frank Zappa it's fantastic but at one point in the movie they're being escorted around a factory having a factory tour and the factory owner turns to them and says that the tragedy of your generation is that you might get exactly what you want and I don't think the xenofeminists would be happy with that their purchase if they got what they wanted. You know what I tend to agree, and that's going to be something that we'll talk about at the end, about whether they are actually winning. Uh, not necessarily that xenofeminism is winning, but is the ideology that undergirds this, is it advancing in the direction they want it to? But we'll save that for a little bit later on. Let's, uh, let's listen to the next paragraph. Xenofeminism is a rationalism. To claim that reason or rationality is, by nature, a patriarchal enterprise is to concede defeat. It is true that the canonical history of thought is dominated by men, and it is male hands we see throttling existing institutions of science and technology. But this is precisely why feminism must be a rationalism, because of this miserable imbalance, and not despite it. There is no effeminate rationality, nor is there a masculine one. Science is not an expression, but a suspension of gender. If today it is dominated by masculine egos, then it is at odds with itself, and this contradiction can be leveraged. Reason, like information, wants to be free, and patriarchy cannot give it freedom. Rationalism must itself be a feminism. XF marks the point where these claims intersect in a two-way dependency. It names reason as an engine of feminist emancipation and declares the right of everyone to speak as no one in particular. So, what's your response to this one? <clears throat> It's an interesting passage, actually, you know, it is sort of a relief to have a radical leftist not attacking rationality for a change or kind of not attacking. Yeah, no, they're not attacking rationality, you know. Um, and I also did like the sentence at the end Um about declaring the right of everyone to speak as no one in particular, because, you know, I initially read that as, you know, a refutation of this tendency people have to stand up and, you know, feel that they have to preface their opinion by stating in what way they have or don't have a right to this opinion, you know, as a woman, I think this, you know, as a victim of rape, as a survivor, sorry, 
of rape, I think this, um, which is pernicious. But they do confirm later in the text that they really didn't mean that at all. So what they meant by that, I have no idea, actually. I think they just put it in because it sounds nice, which is true. Um, but, you know, it's it's really the the male hands throttling existing institutions of science and technology like where is the evidence for that there's no evidence for that because it isn't happening um men certainly did you know lead all of those institutions for very very many years and they used it to make women's lives better you know it was men inventing uh, the pill and labor-saving devices that liberated women from our traditional duties so that we could go into these kind of occupations. And now within science, uh, who was who was that guy um, that got banned from the world because he did? He went to he went to a conference. He was he's like a proper um highly cited scientist uh, i talked about him in a speech years ago um in fact i've t mentioned him in a couple of speeches years ago but he went to a conference on women in science and he looked at the data to see whether uh women were disadvantaged in science and what he found was that um w whilst it's true that papers with male uh, authors like first named are cited more often uh women cite in science are like promoted and given tenure and grants on like significantly less having written less papers and also having significantly less citations and so the overall impression was that women in science are privileged that because of their sex they don't have to be as impressive to get the kind of best jobs and access to the best funding and all of this stuff uh, and he suggested that the citation disparity might in fact be because uh, the papers with male authors first are actually more significant um, and he noted as well that the tendency to cite more papers with male authors first was also, you know, women scientists also cite those papers more often. There's no difference, like men aren't citing papers by men because they like men. It's everyone cites those papers more, which probably is because they're important. Um, so that is just, it's it's a stupid and horrible kind of myth that, is very popular that men are dominating in these fields um and you know when you talk about science and technology as well it's like you then have to pass out what you mean by that uh because there are fields like there are significantly more women in the biologies kind of fields you know in medicine um, so they very particularly choose certain fields. And I mean, obviously they would disregard what I'm about to say. Um, but the fact is that men, you know, it's men and women have different interests. We are 
very lucky to be really quite free in the modern West to pursue careers and endeavours that actually interest us. And if you look at engineering and math, yeah, I was I was actually just going to bring that up because yeah, I mean, uh, there. Well, first of all, there seems to be a huge push in the educational system to have women get into STEM fields. I mean, and that's kind of in popular culture, they're always pushing the idea of the lady boss that is also a scientist and she saves the world after, right? Uh, the, like and and again, yeah, you're right when you said about the the patriarchy earlier. Who are these people or men rather? Who are these men that are specifically advocating to keep women out of science? I've never heard of this. Does it even exist? I honestly do not believe it does. And I mean, if you look at STEM, so the S, the science. If you split that into chemistry, biology, and physics, uh, men do outnumber women in chemistry and physics but women outnumber men in biology to such a degree that actually the s that is predominantly women there technology engineering and mathematics they are all dominated by men but there is actually in that umbrella of subjects an extra m which is medicine so if you have the extra m on the end that whole stem field is disproportionately women you know and the reason that they don't add that and that they don't start passing out the different um, sort of fields, they just lump it together, is because they're trying to create a myth that is not supported by the actual data. Um, and, you know, I mean, this whole sort of idea here that, you know, this suggests to me that they want, they well, they certainly want to get rid of male domination anywhere within this kind of science and technology field. And so I assume they want to push women into it. And that is just a manifestation of the fact that they really don't care about women because, you know, it, it's great. Some a sort of minority of people, including a minority of men, uh, sorry, women, really you know get a lot of value out of this kind of work but you know it can be very lonely um in some fields and you know it takes a massive amount of work and study and you have to get into a huge amount of debt and so many people including many women don't want to devote their entire lives to that they'd be much more happy and fulfilled doing something else you know, and for women, it's often prioritizing familial relationships. Um, but I'm sure that these xenofeminists just think that that's super gross. Um, and so, yeah, it's of all the of all the feminisms, this is the the rankest, in my opinion. Yeah, and again, getting back to like the the fields of study. And maybe I'm wrong about this, but from what I've heard from guys like Jordan Peterson and whatnot that do analysis on, on the bell curve distribution of people who get into those fields is that there's a very small subsection of men that are hyper-focused, almost autistic, with the level of detail and, and effort that they put into mastering a subject 
Whereas women are generally smarter than men on average, uh, a subsection of men are hyper-intelligent, hyper-focused, and hyper-dedicated to a particular goal that it just seems like the average woman can't manifest. And that's nothing against women at all. I'm not saying that to be derogatory. Just it seems like it's a it's a biological reality, which to the xenofeminists, they're trying to uh, obliterate, right? So Eradicate that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, with in terms of the um, IQ difference, there are more men at the very extreme end of like high IQ, but you and don't necessarily IQ. and low IQ indeed, but you don't necessarily need that to be really quite successful in the kind of science and technology fields. You know, depending, you're not going to be, you know, the genius entrepreneur who creates some kind of innovation that changes the world without that probably, but you can have a successful career without being at the very top end of the IQ distribution. But what it does take is that like absolute focus and willingness to sacrifice everything else in your life just for that one goal. And most people don't want that. And I think that it's perfectly reasonable and probably more sane to decide that actually you would rather do something that would allow you to have other things in your life apart from career. And I think that there are slightly more women who do prioritize having that balance in their life than there are men. And that's why you see the difference in outcomes. Absolutely. I, I completely agree. Yeah, you're right. Um, if we go on to section seven and eight, I, I think it's 0708. See, I've got page. Oh, hang on. I see. Oh, yes. It, I see what you mean. I've got the 0708 thing. I couldn't work out what you were talking about, but they're in the corner of my pages. Yeah, got it. Yeah, I just, I, and you bring up a good point for anyone listening that, that clicks on the link. Uh, they have this weird uh, chapter system for the book where it, it's zero times 0 0.1. It's, which is strange to me because anyone that knows anything about mathematics knows that zero times anything is zero, which doesn't really say much about the content of the book. If your whole book is based off of zeros, I don't know what you're going for, but it's kind of backwards to me. <laughs> but We are adamantly synthetic, unsatisfied by analysis alone. XF urges constructive oscillation between description and prescription to mobilize the recursive potential of contemporary technologies upon gender, sexuality, and disparities of power. Given that there are a range of gendered challenges specifically relating to life in a digital age, from sexual harassment via social media to doxing, privacy, and the protection of online images, the situation requires a feminism at ease with computation. Today, it is imperative that we develop an ideological infrastructure that both supports and facilitates feminist interventions within connective, networked elements of the contemporary world. Xenofeminism is about more than digital self-defense and freedom from patriarchal networks. We want to cultivate the exercise of positive freedom, freedom to rather than simply freedom from, and urge feminists to equip themselves with the skills to redeploy existing technologies and invent novel cognitive and material tools in the service of common ends. The radical opportunities afforded by developing forms of technological mediation should no longer be put to use in the exclusive interests of capital, which, by design, only benefits the few. So, okay, to me, that was an extremely truncated way of just saying women need to learn how to code. 
I think it's a particularly it's a particularly good example of their unnecessary um obscurity in the the style of writing though isn't it like as you say it's that is so unnecessarily like just obnoxious constructive oscillations (laughs) that is the most obnoxious say i can't believe you got out that whole sentence in one go I mean, that that's the, <laughs> that's the same. If, if your sentence requires you to take a break halfway through it, I mean, you should probably break it up and, and kind of dumb it down a little bit for us in the back. That'd be helpful. But yeah. yeah. Well, you know, when I when I started writing, when I very first started writing, I put so much time like I would find that I would just write like the longest sentences and there'd be like 15 commas in there. And then I'd look back at it and go that's ridiculous and so you know I trained myself to like full stops as often as possible you know like when you've got several different adjectives when you're using like a number of different verbs it's like you need to simplify it like you are not writing well you are writing like an idiot you know it's it's lovely that you know lots of words but if you you don't have to have them all in one sentence you know yep and okay (laughs) so in this one they're they're big grievances that they point out in in regards to i guess technological forms of uh oppression are let's see text text text-based uh bad messages uh revealing the true identity of someone uh Privacy, I agree with that one to some degree. And just, I guess, protection of online is, are they talking about dick pics, getting unsolicited dick pics? I feel like that is a reference to revenge porn. Okay. All right. Sure. Can you explain a little bit? Can you explain about these list of grievances and how legitimate do you think these are in 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 the grand scheme of things? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean... With regards to sexual harassment via social media, you know, obviously that is a thing that can happen, but I am troubled by how much, you know, we've been focusing on this for a long time and for a long time there have been calls for sort of um, authoritarian kind of protection from this. Um, And... It's just, um, I I don't believe in giving, you know, the government power to shut us up and imprison us for words and all of these kind of things, because you might think that they're only going to use it, you know, to um, attack people that you don't like, but that's never the case, you know, they it always builds um and you know with sexual oh just very quickly jerry just very quick uh, jerry barnett is very good on that topic actually in in specific to right yeah Yeah. sorry go on yes i do like his book porn panic very much that's an excellent book um but you know so we're we're constantly pushing for further legislation and further legislation keeps being brought in with regards to sexual harassment. Um, but, you know, we, we have the tools, we've had the tools since the invention of the block button. 
you know, if someone's annoying you online, you just block them. There's always that, you know, option. And if they do keep coming back, then they fall into traditional harassment legislation. You know, when you keep telling someone to leave you alone, they are not allowed by law to keep pestering you and saying upsetting things to you. So, you know, yeah, what they would call traditional stalking. Yeah, laws, right? yeah, and, and traditional like harassment and uh, malicious communications kind of laws, um, which we've all had for decades. And you know, I mean, it's the sexual harassment kind of uh, hysteria is also interesting for further two reasons that are gendered, which is. Firstly, that, you know, if you look at just general harassment, that is largely targeted at men. Men get so much more harassment, you know, and especially they feminists are constantly getting very upset because, you know, female politicians get nasty tweets sent to them. But the proportion as compared to what male politicians get, like, you know, they dwarf it. But you know, what men are expected to tolerate that, which I, you know, I do think they should, you know, I think it's really, it's a kind of misogyny to assume that women are so weak and fragile that they can't possibly handle absurd criticisms from ridiculous, faceless strangers. Uh, but also with sexual harassment in particular of women. And so if we're looking at uh, the kind of gendered slurs, they disproportionately come from other women and it's the same thing you know you find it in schools as well because they often write reports about how girls in schools are always being called sluts and whores and it's just awful but when you look at the data it's by other girls so you know I find that quite interesting um and then we've got what doxing yeah you know that is a problem uh it's it's not gendered though is it it's not a gendered problem they present it as a gendered problem privacy again not a gendered problem um and the protection of online images i mean that's quite an interesting one and certainly at the moment it's becoming particularly interesting because we are developing the um ability to make highly convincing like fake images and videos and so you know there is like it, it's going to be a bit wild for a while and I don't really know how we are going to manage that it's going to be it's going to be difficult to tell a real video from a fake video pretty soon and it could have consequences um I know that the Biden administration is suggesting that what needs to happen is that there needs to be a federal like regulatory board that will put a stamp on every real video. And I don't see that as a good solution because, you know, small independent journalists are not going to be able to pay for the license. Uh, and, you know, if they submit videos that are perfectly real but that the government doesn't like they're not going to get that stamp and so yeah it's it's interesting and certainly not gendered <laughs> yeah you're absolutely right about that last part i mean 
we do we really want to get into a situation where we have a big brother style body that's going to tell you what's true and false? I mean, we already kind of got a hint of what they would like to do during COVID when they were silencing so many people, kicking people off. So the, yeah, the, 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 the opportunity for abuse on that front is just massive. But I have a feeling that these women would love to be those people. I know. I know. Actually, Rand Paul made a really good point in a hearing like a couple of years ago on this issue of misinformation. You know, he said, who is the biggest purveyor of misinformation over the last 60 years or something like that? And, you know, his answer was it's the U.S. government. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do we do? Actually, you know, I think the only the only useful um, action that, you know, might be able to mitigate the damage is like what Elon has done with X and mm-hmm. the community notes. I think the community notes are absolutely invaluable and perhaps that is the kind of system that we might be able to rely on to some extent to try and mitigate the likelihood of us being misinformed. I could easily see a situation where there's like battling AIs, like there'll be a private sector AI, there'll be a public sector one, and you'll be able to have to make them, you'll have to pit them against each other to try and show with extreme amounts of detail which one is right because of all the sources that they have. I could see something like that developing in the future. All right. Uh, next For the next section, do you want to go on to, do you want to go on to 10? Zero times 10? Let's do it. Xenofeminism seeks to be a mutable architecture that, like open source software, remains available for perpetual modification and enhancement following the navigational impulse of militant ethical reasoning. Open, however, does not mean undirected. The most durable systems in the world owe their stability to the way they train order to emerge as an invisible hand from apparent spontaneity, or exploit the inertia of investment and sedimentation. We should not hesitate to learn from our adversaries or the successes and failures of history. With this in mind, XF seeks ways to seed an order that is equitable and just, injecting it into the geometry of freedoms these platforms afford. So what do you, what do you got on that one? Remarkable, isn't it? What remarkable writing. <laughs> if they really want to seed an order that's equitable and just, I very much suggest they learn to write so that people can understand it. I, I sort of, you know, I... I, I like the fact that they talk about um, a mutable architecture and it's like open source software and available perpetual modification. You know, that's actually something that is refreshing to hear from leftists because generally speaking, leftists, uh, you know, they have the same answers to any problem anywhere in the world and so the idea of actually having something that is responsive you know is a bit of progress on that front um and you know i i absolutely agree about learning from adversaries and history um but yeah, no, overall, I mean, I think that that particular section on its own, isolated, it has nothing that particularly I find egregious in it. 
it's egregious because I know who they are and what they really mean from the rest of the book. What do you think? And it's also egregious just because it's written ridiculously. Yeah, I mean, I guess the only thing I take issue with is what they mean when they say that they want to seed an order that is equitable and just. Yeah. I mean, according to who and, and on what metrics, what, what are we talking about here? And this is what it really, again, with the whole text, they're not really telling you what is going on behind the scenes, like what, what they really have in store for everything. And it, it's, again, like you said, needlessly opaque. And I'm I'm just I'm sitting there wondering, are they wanting some sort of governmental top-down control of what they see as equitable and just, or do, do they truly want it to be open source like I, I i don't know what are they talking about like actual pharma pharmacological uh 3d printing of drugs in the future like wh what do you mean exactly yeah that's an interesting section at the end there uh, about the open source medication but yeah i mean you know i think i suppose we do know that i mean the degree to which they actually want it to be governmental I don't know, perhaps they do genuinely want it to be open source and all of that, but I suspect that they would uh, cheerlead governmental intervention on their side uh, very much. But, you know, this, this seeking of the way to seed order that's equitable and just, and, you know, everybody cares about equitable access and justice. You know, they are fundamentally positive things but you know just the just the opaqueness of the language I think betrays the fact that they don't want it to be open source because they don't even want people to understand this you know they they present themselves as being on the side they they want you know all of these underprivileged demographics to um, have their rights and welfare promoted in this system, but they don't—they don't want them to actually have input, or they'd write in a way that those people could understand, that most people could understand. They want to exclude people. And on the flip side, how, like, how are they not realizing that this has the potential for increasing masculinity and patriarchal dominance? Like, what if? This technology was used by men to uh, enhance their bodies to massive degrees without much work and to solidify control over various systems, uh, maybe uh, just completely get rid of women altogether and just have sex robots and artificial uteruses that we could create people from and just completely do away with women. How do they not see that this can go in a completely different direction? Yeah, I know. Um, but I mean, you know, they. I assume that they would be all in favor of sex robots and artificial wombs because they, you know, are anti-naturalist and seem to find natural biological functions of women's bodies quite uh, awful. So maybe they'd be quite happy with that. I don't know. At least initially. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I'm. I'm 
this is so curious to me. Like, what do they think happens in that kind of world? Like, what 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 goes on? Like, what, what's the point of your life anymore? If you're a genderless transhumanist, like, what do you do with your time all day? Well, yeah, and they've already told us that human relationships are muck. So we're not cultivating our human relationships either. What are we doing that's fulfilling? You know, apparently women, you know, need to go and dominate in science and technology, which, you know, we we can. Those There are not glass ceilings. There are not, you know, um, gatekeepers stopping women entering those fields. You know, we are not because we like other things. But, you know, xenofeminists are not happy about that. So I don't know. I guess we'll all have lab coats and sit on computers making memes to show to our goat herders in Afghanistan or something be really fulfilling yeah what what kind of life what kind of life is this seems so it's almost demonic the way that they want this to happen like what is even the point again again I know that they don't want us to be human but I'm struggling to understand why anyone would not want to be human. And admittedly, I'm way closer to like a raw egg nationalist kind of stance as opposed to a xenofeminist one. But it seems as though the inherent, like the intrinsic beauty of life is the fact that you, like you said, you can have personal relationships, that you use your physical body in the world to develop your mind, to develop your, your physique, to eat healthy. To, to, you, there's so many different ways you can uh, like manifest the, 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 the inherent uh, dignity and uh, value of just being a human. I, and I, I can't, I'm, I'm really struggling to understand why that is so uh, repugnant to them, to the fact that they'd want to eliminate it. You, I... Yeah, and, you know, there are various points in the book where they kind of do this thing that's quite typical of feminists of, like, reacting to gender roles, like, we're all in these straight jackets. And if that was the case, then that would be fair. But the fact is that we're not. You know, there are differences in outcomes, and there are stereotypes about men and women, and they're all based on uh, reality. And... But we are, you know, in, in the modern West, come on, we are absolutely at liberty to deviate in very many ways from our kind of traditional sex roles and traditional kind of sex traits. Um, but the fact that we have that sort of traditional framework, the idea of what is generally expected, if it's not, you know, oppressively pushed on us that we have to be like that I think that that is actually a really useful baseline to start from you know you sort of acknowledge that um foundational kind of um conformity and then you kind of have everything that's so that's your baseline of who you are And then you grow into yourself and start thinking, well, actually, you know, like, that's all fine. But this bit here feels like a little bit uncomfortable to me. So I'm going to explore that part of my personality. And then, you know, maybe that becomes increasingly less sex typical. Or I want to live in a slightly different way. And, 
and you explore it from the baseline. You don't have to reject the kind of baseline outright. And the baseline in many ways, you know, works very well for a lot of people. A lot of people are fundamentally quite sex typical and really get a lot of value from that and feel very comfortable there and safe and secure and can operate in the world that in a way that's very functional in a sex typical way um and it's just it's it's really it's really odd because it's just so divorced from reality like this insistence that we're all trapped by it you know i think it's actually very liberating and you know if these kind of feminists got what they want which is like the complete demolition of any um sex roles or expectations or assumptions about sex then we all enter our lives with literally no idea where to even start and we'd all just be paralyzed into immobility because you can't possibly build an entire individual from scratch all at once it's like you start fairly conformist and then develop in ways that are actually significant to you yeah, and I'm not against anybody doing whatever they want as an adult in regards to their bodies and whatnot. Like, do whatever you want. I guess it's it's just the insidious nature of this ideology that really makes me uncomfortable because to do, to a degree, it really does seem like the the mask is slipping when they when they write something like this. Like, this is what they really, I think, always really wanted to say but maybe they didn't, or maybe you can enlighten me a, a bit. Are, are they really letting the mask slide on this one? Or is this always kind of been the case, just not articulated the same way? Oh, I mean, you know, it is, it's feminist by feminist, you know, I don't like to generalize too much. And there are a lot of feminists who are like obsessively into female biological kind of um, processes, you know, and there's, a, there's a, more rad femmes than not, you know, want for women to carry on doing what they do, like having children and doing domestic things, but they want them to be financially uh, reimbursed for that um, more significantly than they already are in welfare states, you know, but that's their whole sort of thing. So, you know, I wouldn't want to generalize and say this is this is all feminists. Um, but that's is the mask slipping. I'm trying to think of I, I you know, I don't want to I don't want to answer that. I'm not I'm not, I'd have to think about that more carefully. I don't want to speak. Yeah. Turn. It seems like this would be much more in line with the third and possibly fourth wave feminists more than like you said the trad femmes or the second waivers right it does seem like they're really going overboard with the especially body yeah. modification technology yeah i mean actually you know so this is what 2015 this came out and you know so since then we've had the real acceleration of the whole like alphabet movement and i think it's got a lot more in common with that and I think that, you know, what you see in the whole alphabet movement is that actually when you tell people that your biology has nothing, nothing to do with who you are, what happens is not that they are liberated, it's that they suddenly 
the, you know, all these things that could just be answered and then they could kind of, you know, have a little think about tinkering around with the edges and developing who they very much are as an individual. Suddenly they know nothing about themselves and the world is, you know, completely unknown. They are completely unknown to themselves. And they're in this like impossible state where they become hysterical and neurotic and yeah it not only things. you're right not only you're right not only does it stop the, the those things from them but it, it installs this grievance hatred this insidious hatred of everything that's different from you it seems like it they really want you to be upset about things that are just normal things so that's a that's a particularly uh, gross part of this whole thing let's uh let's go on to section I have it listed as 18, but I don't know if that's accurate. We're getting close to the end. XF asserts that adapting our behavior for an era of Promethean complexity is a labor requiring patience, but a ferocious patience at odds with waiting. Calibrating a political hegemony or insurgent memeplex not only implies the creation of material infrastructures to make the values it articulates explicit, but places demands on us as subjects. How are we to become hosts of this new world? How do we build a better semiotic parasite? one that arouses the desires we want to desire, that orchestrates not an autophagic orgy of indignity or rage, but an emancipatory and egalitarian community buttressed by new forms of unselfish solidarity and collective self-mastery. Oh, wow. I, I, need, a, I need a break after that. Uh, let's... <laughs> I know. I, I need to, like, get into heroin after that or something. <sighs> it's so hubristic, isn't it? And it's it's that moment that really stood out to me on my first reading. How are we to become the hosts of the new world? It's like so hubristic. Yes, yeah. Can you expand on that? Like, why, why do you why do you want to be the hosts of the new world? Like that is not a desire that has ever occurred to me. And when I look around, you know, history, it appears to me that every time that desire to host the new world, to you know, be the architect of the new world appears in people, the outcome is not good, you know? Yeah, every time it almost seems to end in genocide and terrible exactly. communist systems when that's the case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know what I did notice as well, though, that uh, made me smile? This, um, how, I mean, what does this bit mean, right? How do we build a better semiotic parasite? <laughs> Yeah, they're. I mean, again, that's why I asked earlier about the mask dropping because it's all they're saying right there. They want a pathogen inserted into you that will manifest itself down the line into something they think is beautiful. Although you know what, the irony of that is that that sentence comes right after "How are we to become the hosts?" <laughs> so that they, they want to be the hosts and they want to build a parasite. I think I think that that is like a Freudian slip there because I think they intend the parasite to be for you know the uh, white patriarchal capitalist system that they despise so much. But you know they're gonna become the hosts, and that's the truth if they get what they want. But it was um, they want a, a better semiotic parasite, one that arouses the desires we want to desire. And I think that's actually really interesting. There is um, a saying, I can't remember who said it. It's in some kind of Christian writing. I don't know if it's 
perhaps Saint Aquinas, um, but there is there's this saying that man can do what he wills, but he cannot will what he wills. <laughs> and I I really resonate with that. You know, I think it's absolutely true. Um, you know, you things, desires and interests present themselves to you and they're really, you know, you, you can't be interested in something that you're just not interested in, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's one of the beautiful mysteries about human experience, I find. Like, I really do find interesting. And when you are alert and awake in the world, things present themselves to you and they grab your attention and you engage with them and then you follow them down this synchronous pathway and I find that it's actually a very beautiful and positive way to live. And you do accidentally stumble into information that is astounding and awe-inspiring and find people who, you know, you love dearly. Um, but it's very, it's, it's an interesting turn of phrase, like the desires they want to desire. Is that an admission that, they actually don't desire the things that ideologically they have decided that they should desire, but they don't, but they want to. Maybe they do want a parasite for themselves because they are like insufficiently ideologically pure. And they acknowledge that, which is, you know, a disturbing thought while they are going about trying to uh, dictate how society should be for everyone else. But they can't even want what they want to want. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine a scene where they actually get what they want. Let's imagine for a second they get what they want and we're in the future, a couple decades. What do they do with someone, whether it be a boy or a girl, that actually starts to... No, it wouldn't. It wouldn't? No, it wouldn't be a boy or a girl, would it? It would be a... I don't know what it would be but it wouldn't be one of them. So we're past all that. We're past all that in the brave new world. So they wouldn't even allow. So, okay. They're completely manufacturing children at this point, or is there no, there's not even any. Biological no, I think, people. I think, I think what they want is to like, yeah, I think maybe they would go for that actually like a, a sort of factory process, like in brave new world yeah. with all the bottles. Because, you know, birth is disgusting. Um, I don't think that we'd find a way to actually make us all sexless. Maybe we could. But we certainly would have torn down, you know, ideas about men and women. So regardless of the biological reality, we wouldn't be referring to boys and girls, would we? We'd all be like comrade one and comrade two, I guess. Uh, well... <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of I'm thinking of like I know as stupid as this might sound initially uh in Jurassic Park when the when Malcolm says life finds a way there's got to be this thing where biology is going to have to bump up against technology but it seems like because of we are a human animal that life will somehow find a way so what do they do in the future if they kind of get their way but there's still this irrepressible human urge to just be a boy or a girl how do they deal do you think with something like that is it outright elimination or is it is there a caste system that the you think that they would want to set up 
like the 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 reels and and the artificials it seems like that's what it's headed yeah. towards i i could i could see that as their first port of call like there would be an an underclass you know of like savages who live as men and women and and like it because they're so disgusting and they don't understand our absurd opaque literature they they still think shakespeare's all right or something like that yeah even even comptroller mustafa in brave new world he let them be <laughs> boys and girls he didn't stop them from doing yeah. that right no. they actually encouraged no. them to have sex right like so <laughs> this is weird uh okay um all right let's go on to the next part of Ours is a transformation of seeping, directed subsumption rather than rapid overthrow. It is a transformation of deliberate construction, seeking to submerge the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy in a sea of procedures that soften its shell and dismantle its defenses, so as to build a new world from the scraps. Wow. Okay. So and this really gets to this weird, again, dichotomy that they have, that they're talking about these seemingly revolutionary ideas, but they don't want to call it that. And I don't, are they kind of scared that if they call it a revolution, that it'll be uh, more re rejected by more people? I mean, what is this weird, what is this weird balancing act they're trying to, to where they're, they're seeding, they're putting parasites in, they're not, they're directing things, but not really forcing the issue. Is what do you make of this? Because I, I can't understand why they won't just come out and say, look, we hate you. We hate the way you are and we want to eliminate it. Why not just say that? Yeah, I think there is an element of political expediency and, you know, some awareness that uh, it doesn't come across well and they might not, you know, attract as many people if they came right out, right out and said that. Um, but then, you know, on the other hand, I think that. I think that they would be correct if actually their motivation is just that it would be more effective to do it in this seeping kind of directed subsumption way. And actually, you know, I think that that has been occurring for quite a long time. Um, you know, I, I would not, I don't think that defining Western civilization as a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy is appropriate. Um, but I believe that they are talking about the same civilization that I live in. And I think that actually it has been affected by that kind of process and it's been subverted and it has moved in the direction of um, feminism as defined as like, a female supremacy movement um, through this kind of seeping drip feed kind of manipulative um, action. And I mean, you know, that's kind of interesting as well because that's the girl's way of doing it, isn't it? You know? I guess you're right. Yeah, the the revolution would be more male driven, yeah. right? It would just be this. This is what I say. This is what I mean. Yeah, when, doing when, it, right? it, when men a perform a coup, it's dramatic and noticeable, yeah. you know. But when girls do it, like we have, 
we kind of just, you know, look sad here and there, get some judges to like rule on our side, you know, and use our kind of, um, yeah, you know, the, our status as the limiting factor in reproduction, we pull on all of those kind of innate biological perspectives that people have on us, you know? And so actually that's that's quite interesting given that, you know, they rail against femininity and they rail against their status as women, but actually the methods that they are promoting are deeply reliant on them being women. Like, you know, men coming in trying to, you know, seed little ideas and all of this, you know, it wouldn't work in that way. You know, a, a slimy manipulative man, manipulative man is like generally quite easily spotted and off put into most people. Whereas women can get away with it quite effectively. And again, I, like, I'm not asking you to read their mind. If you can provide any insight into this, I'd be interested to hear it. Um, so they've identified themselves earlier as being very pro-trans. Uh, actually a little, a little bit ahead of their time, considering how big it's gotten, like you said, what do they, what do you think they would think about a man converting to a woman and then living out a very feminine, typical kind of uh, display? Like, is that kosher with them or is that just seen as another embodiment of the patriarchy? I mean, you know, that is one of the interesting kind of conflicts that I observe, like, in that whole sphere generally. Um, it feels very regressive to me what happens there, you know, um, because it is, you know, you the, the kind of more vocal, like, trans women uh, like lobbyists for the sort of alphabet movement, they they seem to present as this really stereotypical kind of woman. You know, if you look at Dylan Mulvaney, like it's bordering on offensive to women the way he behaves, you know, since he's come out as a woman. Um, and so... Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. And I suspect that this lot would be doing exactly what the kind of um trans trans inclusionary feminists, fourth wave, whatever, are doing, which is pretending they don't see that. Yeah, you I know? mean, but if I had to bet, I'd say that the xenofeminists probably would embrace the trans. Uh, men that yeah, turn that, no that's that's what I mean yeah. yeah even even if they were being uh like like absurdly over the top with their feminine uh production and their feminine uh, because they can seize on the grievance that those people would feel and really exploit exactly. really exploit and I'm not saying they're mentally ill or anything I'm just saying they're 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 preying on people like that because they can act as the vanguard class. I mean, we are talking about essentially a communist thing here. They that that was part of the the vanguard class they outlined at the beginning. 
and they really do want to seize upon the difference between people and use that as a weapon against what they see as normative. So yeah. I would, I but would you say know, they would, I mean, they, they would, I, I imagine that they would um, be disgusted by a woman, a cis woman who presents in a very feminine way. But I don't think they would be disgusted by a trans woman presenting in a very, very feminine way. And I think that it is absolutely for the reasons you suggest. Well, on the other side of the coin, would they be hostile towards a woman that wants to be a man, like full transition? Because oh, and, no, and I think I think they'd get a pass, but then they hate actual men as well. You know, cis men don't they? That's part of the dichotomy. I don't understand. Yeah. You under, can you shed any light on that? Like, why is that acceptable, but a traditional man is not? Well, you know, as you say, I think that <clears throat> for certain feminists, and I would suspect that xeno feminists would be in this demographic. Um. Resentful trans lobbyists are just useful because they can be cultivated to have the same common enemy. Yeah. You know, perhaps if they got their revolution, you know, afterwards at some point they turn on the trans people who felt like they were expressing their real selves by, you know, being typical of the sex they've transitioned to. But certainly, you know, as we're working towards the revolution, they'll they'll be comrades. Yeah, because I'm in, in, I'm I'm not trying to go ad hominem on these people, but like I looked up a bunch of them and I sent you some links to their profiles and stuff. They seem like they are women who present as women and aren't necessarily as interested in uh, trans politics and identity politics as they are about what seems like old school feminism that they had to couch in modern feminism just so that they get an in, but then they're, they're not, I, I think they just truly want to be the, the inner party. They, that they're using this as sort of just a way to get more people on their side. I don't think they really care that much about trans people. I think they care about the post-humanist people, but again, the, like you said at the beginning, I think, they're like useful idiots, right? They can use all these people as as soldiers in the war against uh, nature. So, I based on what these people actually are and what they show themselves in the world, I'm not convinced that again that this isn't just a, a mask slipping practice, and that they're 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 perfectly comfortable being women. They just want to be the ones in control of this new world that they're trying to forge. Yeah, absolutely. Which is very much in the you know traditional fem um, feminist mold of ostensibly being you know the champions of it was women for feminists. You know, traditional feminists for xeno feminists. It's a more what like limited kind of grouping um, that they name specifically, but there isn't you know there's it's not really it's not really care it's like they care about people in their chosen demographic who will perform for them they will be the victims that they need to promote their ideas and they you know will if 
these people get their way, you know, want the things that they want them to want. It's like, you know, you get sort of feminists. I remember when I was originally put off feminism, you know, I, I was looking around and seeing feminists like dogpiling glamour models and uh, attacking women who chose to be stay-at-home mothers and all these sorts of things and then going, yeah, you know, I'm I'm a champion for women. And it's like, yeah, but it's women who behave in the way that you want them to behave, you know? Absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. It's just you have to be the right kind of woman. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't think Sino feminists would be a fan of Blair White. <laughs> you're absolutely yeah, yeah, or Buck Angel for that matter, right? Yeah, yeah, no, they they are not the right kinds of trans people, are they? Uh, but I mean, that the other thing that I found interesting and just sad and horrible in that little section we've just read is that they want to build a new world from the scraps. And it's like, you know, I think things like that are very easy to say, but like, are they really thinking about that? Because when a civilization or a society collapses into scraps what that means is significant human misery and yeah perhaps sometimes a society has become so corrupt that that has to happen in order for progress to have you know occur further down the line but the scraps of a society is not a good place to be and it's not something that we should be wishing for however much we want change. Yeah, when when you hear them say that word scraps, are, are you thinking in your mind scraps of what exists as in they're not happy with what, what's going on now, so we're dealing with the scraps now, or are they talking about they're going to destroy stuff and then the scraps of that is what they're going to be rebuild with? That's precisely what I'm thinking. Yeah, you know, they want to dismantle the defenses of our white supremacist capitalist patriarchy uh, and build a new world from the scraps. So, yeah, I am seeing destruction and then they're going to, you know, build something much better. But it's like how many how many families are unable to feed their children, how many people um die from preventable illnesses in all of this you know before your utopia and you know that uh, if that's a price you're willing to pay then okay but like let's make that more explicit right i think you should have to make that explicit if if that's what you're advocating for you have a responsibility to be honest that you don't give a shit how many people or you know if you do like precisely how many people's lives are collateral damage yeah and like really like again we we've done this before but what what kind of value is there to to doing this to destroying things and then becoming the ruler of the scraps like is that really something that would make you happy inside is that really going to fulfill you or is it just gonna i don't know is that is is the is the point of life to go to a post-human world so you can write diatribes like this is that the end game and is that, I mean, is that what they're going to be doing in the scraps of civilization? Or actually, are they going to be doing the same thing that we all are, like desperately trying to survive on a minute by minute basis? It might not be as fun as they imagined. Very last paragraph of Xenofeminism. 
Xenofeminism indexes the desire to construct an alien future with a triumphant X on a mobile map. This X does not mark a destination. It is the insertion of a topological keyframe for the formation of a new logic. In affirming a future untethered to the repetition of the present, we militate for ampliative capacities, for spaces of freedom with a richer geometry than the aisle, the assembly line, and the feed. We need new affordances of perception and action unblinkered by naturalized identities. In the name of feminism, Nature shall no longer be a refuge of injustice or a basis for any political justification whatsoever. If nature is unjust, change nature. Wow. Well, I'm I'm just I'm picturing a xenomorph style Che Guevara like holding up the, 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 the XF flag at the end. So, and burning his bra. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, bra, sorry. <laughs> so so what do you think of that wrapping it up? I mean one thing that stuck out to me right there is that the assembly line and the feed, like like cattle, like they really do see us as just animals. Like, is that, it, it's so sad, is that in, that they just, they, they want people, they want people who read this to view other people as less like animalistic almost if they don't get this. Yeah. Is that what they're really, yeah, okay. Yeah, I think, and it's, yeah, it's it's a judgment on how we're all living, you know, I suspect they don't feel like that personally because they're enlightened, right? By they have these ideas, they're xenofeminists, but they look at the rest of us and we're all beasts, just, you know. Unenlightened creatures, yes. Doing these meaningless, insignificant things for no reason. And it's like, <laughs> how about fuck you? You know, maybe we have meaning in our lives. Like I see a lot of very good, decent, beautiful people. Um and it's just it's it's such a it's such a bad perspective on life, you know. They they want a future untethered to the repetition of the present. And you know, I think that that is kind of emblematic of a sort of a, an idea um, or a, a perspective, this ungrateful kind of perspective that is quite common in academia these days. Uh, yeah, where there is no value assumed for institutions and ideas that have lasted and nourished people for a long, long time. Um, but I think that there is, um, you know, any any institution or idea that has persisted over time and been passed on by generation to generation, I think it's fairly wise to assume that there's some value in it. And I also think that it's wise to be mindful that, you know, we should constantly be looking and re-examining and, you know, examining things with different lenses because perhaps they could be improved incrementally. But it's, you know, it's it's very hard to build things that are good from scratch. Yeah. And that that final that final line, if nature is unjust, change nature. This is so like it's I, I wouldn't say that I'm I'm kind of triggered by it. I'm kind of triggered. I am. I am. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Nate, like it is the state that we should be striving to get back towards. And I don't mean that in uh in, in their in their sense of the word of destroying everything we have to get back to uh you know uh the the old 
tooth and claw in the in the state of nature type of deal. I just mean, if you can get back to a more natural life, this is the best thing that you can possibly do for yourself. And like I said earlier, exercise your body, get sleep, go and like, I guess I'm re- what I'm really saying is a touch grass mentality. Be, stay offline as much as you can. Forge bonds with your community, have friends, love your children, do things with your family. Uh, the answer is not to go farther into, because again, like, I hate to go back to something Ted Kaczynski said, but in his manifesto, he was pointing out that the fact that we've gone so far with technology is actually, sorry, <clears throat> technology has not create actually solved the problems of the past. And we keep going ahead with new ones, despite leaving the old problems where they are, even festering to get worse. The answer is to go back into a simpler time, not a simpler time, but a more simple existence would be the way to go about doing this, not making things needlessly complicated. And I guess one more thing that I, I don't know the answer to this, and I guarantee you they don't know the answer to this, and it's the old Chesterton's fence analogy. There are biological realities there for a reason. There, that fence is there, and if you tear it down, you do it at your own peril because you don't know what's on that other side. It may even be something that comes back to destroy you in the end. So by unleashing radical AI or whatever kind of weird technological plan they have, how are they not so sure that this isn't going to backfire and just eliminate everything? Exactly. I, the Chesterton's fence... Um analogy occurred to me as well i think you know we should be practicing caution when we are pushing ahead with technological progress because we don't know what the uh, outcomes are going to be and everything is a trade-off you know if you look at um the invention of the printing press and you know uh the wider availability of books and the acquisition of literacy you know that's i would say that that has been a net gain but it was a trade-off you know if you go to a pre-literate tribe and you tell them a story in five years time they'll be able to repeat it word from word you know, word for word, sorry. And, you know, it's the fact that we now rely on writing things down and being able to read them that has left, you know, our memory function has atrophied. And so, you know, it's like, and and that is a very simple technology, like a book, written language, that is very simple. And so the idea that we, it's okay to have absolutely zero caution and just push ahead with these technologies that are so complex. Like, I think it's really dangerous. Um, And yeah, you know, I mean, absolutely nature is unjust in very many ways. Um, You know, people get sick and that is not just, Um, but the, the change nature, idea you know that is not that's not the response it is that is a very dangerous response we need to you know have gratitude for our limitations that actually make us human and you know make things beautiful they make everybody different and that is beautiful um and you know the fact that we are aware of our own mortality 
that's part of the reason that we love each other so deeply you know if nobody ever died or got sick or failed like there'd be no point in loving each other if there was no possibility of losing each other if we didn't change from year to year then who cares you know we'd just be the same as any old brick in a wall um but oh yeah so i mean yeah nature nature is it's unjust and a lot of the technological progress that we have made has liberated us from some of the um or mitigated the ability of nature to you know harm us like we live much longer lives we have clean water and all of these things you know which is lovely and yet you know nature has since the dawn of man you know provided people with those moments of awe that actually make life beautiful and even you know in the darkest of moments people can derive meaning from seeing animals going about their business and a beautiful sunset and you know a fantastic mountain and the reflections in a lake and so you know it's it's really the that attitude that they have to nature is just really ugly isn't it yeah it is like especially what what hit me with what you said is this this desire they have to eliminate scarcity and eliminate emotions, eliminate any sort of human instinct. You're right. There is there, there's that that's at the core of it, really all we have. And that's part of the beauty of nature is trying to overcome the challenges that it presents us with. And that gives your life meaning in and of itself, not saying the whole thing is unfair and then flipping the 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 game table over. It's that's part of being alive and it's part of the beautiful part of being alive. If we're just, like you said, I love the way you said, just we can't just be a brick in the wall. Otherwise there's no point to anything anymore. We're just a sterile environment piece of furniture. And that's. Yeah, uh, if, if there's, if there's like nothing, uh, if there, there are no challenges, then there's no hero arc, right? Like there's not right. even a story. That's right. Um, wouldn't it be incredibly ironic if Mother Nature, in its worst manifestation, a natural disaster, completely white, like completely destroyed the mainframe that this was hosted on? <laughs> <laughs> that would be something. I would like that. I don't know if it'd be a nature or an act of God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so we went through the whole thing pretty much. And just before we wrap up, I wanted to, because this is, the show is called Magenta Pills. I was hoping that you could give us a red pill, a white pill, and a black pill from all of this. Hopefully, the white pill would be last. But do you have okay. a red? Do you have a red pill from xenofeminism? Um, I suppose. Yeah, I think the red pill of this is that whilst railing against femininity, like this could not be written by men, right? This is such a like it's it's so in, entitled and it's so um the, that that approach that they talk about you know the way that they want to manipulate the system 
um, and and also the fact that they want to install themselves as like the high priestesses and they feel like they are the custodians of all the wisdom and goodness in the world is like so kind of stereotypically feminine and so I think that that is entertaining and there's the red pill I think the black pill is that can you pause for one sec can you pause, uh, can I give you my, my red pill they talk yeah yeah well we'll, sure. we'll do shot for shot so yeah, my one, red oh, pill yeah. for this is that they really like if you dig deep enough into their literature they really let the mask slide I know I kind of alluded to that earlier but I really do feel like this whole manifesto is a way of telling you we don't like you. We hate you, actually. We hate everything you stand for. And we would like to destroy everything you think is beautiful. And that is more, if they would just be a bit more articulate and clear about what they said, I feel like this would be a big warning flag to everybody. But again, like you said, they're being kind of underhanded in the way they present it, uh, cloaking the language. But that was my red pill, is that they just came right out and said, essentially, they want to destroy you. And that's really what they're all about at the end of the day. I do think as well, though, that like, you know, my question is to what degree is that a deliberate manipulation that they are leaving that out? And to what degree have are they existing in this ivory tower where you can come out with these absurdly long sentences with esoteric vocabulary and everyone pretends to understand? And so actually they haven't really thought about it to the degree of you know if you if you rewrote this in clear language maybe they'd read it and be like that's awful how could you say that like do they really understand what they're saying you know maybe they do but i'm not 100% sure i think that there is you know an academic echo chamber in some of these fields and disciplines Actually, yeah, well, that's a good point because I would there, there's this lingering kind of thought in the back of my head with the, with reading this whole manifesto that this could just be a vanity project for them, and and they could just be exercising acad academic prowess and they don't mean a word of it. I mean, that would be a a good red pill to swallow <laughs> if that was it. But I don't, I still don't feel like they're dedicated to this stuff. So I feel like you know what I see. I I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters if I, I think it's actually slightly more likely that it is like a vanity project and they don't really understand what they're saying. And I think that but I think that it doesn't matter, you know, um, your conscious motivations. They're not they're not that significant when the outcome, the outcome is what the outcome is. And, you know, I mean from a psychological kind of perspective, I think that we are all often unaware of unconscious motivations that are leading us to act in ways that we act. And, you know, as a Christian, I actually also believe that there are demonic forces who, if you are not alert and watching yourself and watching what you say, they can lead you into promoting and supporting and facilitating um, really awful outcomes. Okay, so give me your black pill on this then. <laughs> Is that not dark enough? <laughs> yeah, that was, let's yeah. go darker. No, yeah, my, yeah. My, black, my black 
pill is that although they sort of present uh, these ideas of subversion as you know, something they should do. I think actually this process has been well underway for a long, long time. Um, and I am, it's not clear to me that enough of our institutions remain incorrupted enough to salvage. And so actually, you know, I think we might inevitably end up with the scraps that they talk about, the scraps of a civilization very soon. And it will be because of ideas like these. I, I, I agree in a, in, for different reasons. Uh, I, I completely think that we are on the path towards this, not necessarily xenofeminism being uh, you know, prophetic, but we are on this direction where, actually, I think we're at a unique point in human history right now where we we haven't actually started putting the, the technology into our biological bodies yet to well you know what i mean in a, in a seriously in a seriously disruptive way i guess like neural link would be a big one that that's crossing a threshold that i don't necessarily think we should and that i was kind of thinking of this youtube uh cartoon video i saw a while ago where it's like uh it shows the evolution of uh, of real uh, the evolution of biological beings us uh, starting with a single cell amoeba and then advancing to a monkey monkey to person person starting to put stuff in their body person becoming cyborg person eventually just becoming a computer and we're at that unique point where we don't necessarily have to go down that path but i think we will because of mass adoption of technology and it'll slowly gene crispr editing neurolink mrna vaccines like you you name it it's going to start to come and it's not going to be necessarily our choice in the future it's going to be a thing you're going to almost have to do to keep up with the world right the way that cell phones kind of did that to people so i guess that's my black pill is that i don't want to say they're right in the way they put it, but they're right about the general trajectory of humanity. Well, I mean, saying that, that they're right about the general trajectory, I don't think, they don't seem to think that the general trajectory is inevitable. They seem to think that they have to push us to the point where our civilization collapses, you know, and I think they might have done enough, actually. Um, <laughs> but, you know, certainly... I don't think that there's any possibility, not only that, you know, their system that they're going to build instead is going to be utopian. Obviously, it wouldn't be. But I don't think that there is any possibility of um, anything like their system being the result, the resulting, you know, like outcome after the collapse. You know, it ain't going to be like that. I tell you what, like, we are going to, very much be um, back to being oppressed by our natural sexual biology after the collapse. You know, it's going to be very important that men are stronger than women. We are, we are going to appreciate that when society is collapsed and, you know, women who get pregnant will be highly vulnerable and they will absolutely be reliant on men for protection and provision. 
So they'll get the opposite of what they want after they get what they want before what they ultimately want, which is, you know, the destruction. Um, so it's, it sounds like your white pill that I heard a couple white pills in there. The first one is that you kind of think that this thing is cyclical. I don't I don't want any of that you know like I I I want us to continue on the kind of trajectory that we've been on since the industrial revolution of like increasing um liberty in terms of time and you know convenience like with our domestic appliances and all of that I think we are very fortunate um to be at this time i i don't want our society to collapse and the fact that xeno feminists would get a slap in the face when they realize that suddenly men and women are more important than they ever imagined post collapse is not going to make me feel much better about it um but i suppose my white pill would be i think that they are absolutely fundamentally wrong the xenofeminists about the significance and the beauty and the importance of the differences between men and women um and that most people actually do enjoy that the difference between men and women um and i do feel like you know we're we're also at an unprecedented time in history because whilst we are staring down the barrel of civilizational collapse and a lot of the things that we're experiencing are echoes of things that other civilizations have experienced at the point of collapse our ability to communicate no one's ever had that before so you know perhaps there is just a small possibility that we might be able to avert or mitigate some of the disaster you know okay maybe yeah i mean talk it out. <laughs> i hope so i mean i i'm kind of drawing off of a michael malice quote with this but my white pill was that you know the whole idea behind uh if if they had already won or if, if their defeat, like their defeat of us was inevitable, then this propaganda wouldn't even be necessary. They would just do it. The fact that they still have to feel like this isn't going fast enough for their liking should be a little bit of a white pill in itself. The other one is that wh whether they like it or not, we still have a choice about whether or not we go along with these things. You, you don't have to take the jab. You don't have to get the neural link. And yeah, we might find ourselves in a, in a bad place down the road where there are underclasses. Uh, you don't have to choose to be one of the others though. You, you can stay true to yourself. You can be a real person. And yeah, life might be harder, uh, yeah. but it's, it's definitely a more fulfilling, worthwhile existence than being some sort of automaton in this yeah. Hellish, uh, communist, feminist uh, utopia, right? I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, it is the most important thing that we can do um, to hold on to the last of the human freedoms that Viktor Frankl defined while he was in uh, the Nazi concentration camp system 
which was the free uh, the freedom to go one's own way you know and he came to that realization in a Nazi concentration camp with people dying around him, starving, you know, dying of um, very much preventable diseases at the time, being forced to do unbelievably backbreaking hard labor in the snow with insufficient clothing, you know. And he realized that the most important thing was the choice to go one's own way. So, you know, how bad can our lot possibly be? if we refuse to put chips in our brains with which, you know, we can be manipulated by whoever has access to them, I think it would be worth it <laughs> to be free. Absolutely. That. That's a great way to end it. And uh, Elizabeth, I thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you for coming on and helping us shed some light on this uh, madness we see here. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. for patronizing the magenta pills podcast stay tuned for your next prescription